If you're a fan of fat, then you need to try the F-Bombs. Go to JimmyLovesFBomb.com, enter the coupon code JimmyLovesFBomb, and you'll get 20% off of your first order. So what are these F-Bombs? They are nut butters, and they have incredible combinations of coconut and macadamia nut, macadamia nut butter, and my favorite is salted chocolate macadamia nut butter. They also have several oil blends, including the house blend, the MCT oil, as well as coconut oil. If you want your fat on the go, then you need to check out JimmyLovesFBomb.com. And once again, use the coupon code JimmyLovesFBomb. You'll get 20% off your first order. JimmyLovesFBomb.com. Ah, uh, living la vida loca. This show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up the avocados, fry some eggs. Time to explore the longest running health podcast, hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the living la vida low carb show. Hey. So Holly White, what's going on? Hello, hello. I am excited to speak with you today. Hello, hello. So we have a mutual friend or I guess pair of friends, Ross and Kara from the F-Bomb Company and the soon to release, what is it? Eat at the Real is their restaurant? Uh, the Real Kitchen. The Real Kitchen. Uh, Eat at the Real Instagram. is their Instagram page. That's right. Yes. Yes, exactly. So that's how I found you because I have been longtime friends with Ross and Kara long before they even started their F-bomb company. Uh, and so I saw that they're starting this Real Kitchen in Flagstaff, uh, Arizona. And I was like, okay, uh, ooh, those are some cool drinks. Oh, and then they tagged you as the uh, maker of the drink. And I said, oh, who's this? So I look you up and lo and behold, I'm looking at your Instagram page, Holly White, a coach, trauma to empowerment guide, food and thought alchemist, super spiritual scientist, and you host, co-host the Mirror Pod. I assume that's a podcast. What do you talk about on that podcast? Yeah. Um, so that podcast, unfortunately, is not happening any longer. Uh-oh. because Our producer's um, father was diagnosed with a severe illness. So she is taking care of him, um, which obviously that is much more uh, difficult than the ending of the podcast. But it was awesome because we got to get a handful of episodes in and essentially we're talking about um, introspective nature into yeah. trauma and empowerment and how psychology and health connect and all kinds of, um, I guess, intertwined ideals about health and psychology and our reflection uh, of others, of ourselves in others in this yeah. world. So. Yeah, we got a lot of good uh, stuff going on in there, and I'm excited to begin a new podcast at some point with Ah, the same concept. Nice. And see, here's the thing. I've been in this kind of health space for over 15 years, been podcasting since 2006. I'm often called the grandfather of the health podcasting world because I've just been out there for so long. but. I have been talking about diet and exercise and biohacking and all these things that are very important when it comes to your health for a very long time. 
And I think there is a huge neglected area of health that nobody wants to touch. And it's this area of trauma Mm -hmm. and specifically childhood trauma. And I definitely want to pick your brain here today. And let's just have a conversation about this, because quite frankly, Everybody has some form of trauma that has happened to them, whether they even realize it or not. Do you find most people that come to you? Yes, maybe they know some kind of an event that happened or something in their life was wrong, but they didn't realize the extent of it. Absolutely. There is no doubt about that. And the interesting thing is that while the trauma informed health coaching is really my passion and what I want to be fully immersed in, in my coaching practice. Um, I also am a personal trainer and a yoga teacher. And a lot of people come to me just to really have, um, a physical accountability coach, whether it's that we go on hikes or, you know, we work out in the gym or we do yoga, but it, as you said, it's interesting because, um, I don't fight it. I let people pay for the service they choose, but there is always so much more to, our sessions together. And there is always so much more transformation than they originally walked in the door thinking they were going to receive. So Holly, can I tell you something, knowing that you're a personal trainer and a yoga instructor, I have always hated, hated lifting weights. And (laughs) even yoga was a little bit more challenging for me. And I know a lot of that's mind letting your mind wander. And my mind wanders when I'm in yoga, uh, as everybody does when they first start. And I've always wondered, why was weightlifting so hard? Why was going to a yoga class so hard? And since dealing with my childhood trauma and some of this stuff coming out, I have not gone back to a yoga class, but I'm real excited to do that. But I have started lifting weights again. And now my body is responding very well to the point that I now crave lifting weights. Is there anything to this trauma holding in your muscles so tightly so that you're not going to feel the full effects of what you should be getting when you are working out? Is there any science that supports this kind of tension in your muscles that would make it unpleasant? And when you let that go, it suddenly does what it's supposed to do? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if there were some studies on it. As far as I know, I don't know of any specific studies that have like proven this one way or another. Uh, P.S. My dog is snoring very loudly. So if you hear that in the background. (laughs) That's all right. That's called real life. And we're all about that here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I think you hit the nail on the head there, which is that uh, a lot of times, you know, our trauma is stored in our body in one way or another. And the first thing I got out of your comment there is that, um, and I might be wrong, I base a lot of my uh, coaching on intuition with other people, but um, essentially, I believe that sometimes, and especially in what your case, what you just said, sometimes lifting is hard because we don't feel strong enough in life in general. We don't feel worthy of being strong or we feel defeated. And so actually facing lifting heavy weights and being in that world feels really heavy pun intended. Right. <laughs> it's like, we just feel like we're going to cave under the pressure and we don't have the ability to do it. Um, and so I think a lot of times when we work through our trauma a bit more, we are, you know, literally becoming stronger. 
And it's so empowering to lift weights for a lot of people. That's why I think a lot of people in recovery from addiction start lifting because it's a new form of strength and, you know, literally presenting that from the inside out. Right. Well, in my case, it wasn't that I lacked strength or didn't think I was strong enough. I think every guy inherently in their brain thinks they're stronger than they actually are. <laughs> so I don't have that problem, Holly. <laughs> but I, I would say that all of the stress that was pent up in my body that I didn't even know I had was causing such delayed onset muscle soreness and uh, to the extreme. Like I'm talking three, four days post-workout still dealing with muscle soreness. And I'm going, okay, I know that's not normal. I've talked to a million people on this show talking about that kind of thing. And it never clicked until I dealt with some of my childhood trauma, which involved emotional, physical, and sexual abuse and so you let that go, you deal with the trauma, then suddenly that that tension in your muscles is released and now you're able to see the results that you should have been seeing all along. Right. Yes, absolutely. Well, and on top of that, you know, the hormones related to trauma, stored trauma um, and just general stress hormones um, in our body also are related to our ability to produce muscle and restore uh, and recover from exercise. So absolutely, those can be affected on a molecular level. That's very real. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's interesting. I didn't know that about your story that you had the physical activity background, but that's awesome. And namaste. Namaste a bit. Namaste. Uh, so, <laughs> no, I do need to go back to yoga because I did like the mindsetness of yoga. Never mind the physicality of it. You get a little bit of physicality, but it's mostly all in that noggin of yours, which can help calm your brain from any stressor that you have in your life, not just trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's dive into trauma a little more because that is your wheelhouse. Uh, have Did you yourself suffer from some kind of childhood trauma? What got you so passionate about this issue? Yeah, so I have no problem sharing my story um, and tell me if I end up going too oh, far. Oh, you go, with girl. I'm sharing all kind of deep stuff from my own <laughs> life, so you can't share okay. anything too deep. Go. Yeah, um, well, I lived... I have lived a wonderful life. I have been so incredibly blessed. I have a great family, friends. Um, so I, in that regard, have been very, very honored to inhabit this body uh, in this lifetime. But my dad, who was my best friend, uh, passed away when I was 12 and his sleep, he was only 47. And he was a world famous paragliding teacher. He was one of the first people to ever begin paragliding. And he was the first certified paragliding instructor in the world. What is that? Uh, paragliding is a form of, uh, I guess, I almost just said aerial. Um, <laughs> sorry, not aerial. It's like a form of flying. So it's not a parachute, not a hang glider, but you have a glider. Oh, you said gliding. I thought you yes. said riding. That's why I was oh. like, what kind of riding? I haven't heard of this riding before. <laughs> paragliding. Got it. Yes, now I know, I know what that is, of course. <laughs> yeah. So he was a paraglider pilot and um, he's still world renowned, holds tons of records still and pretty much is the structural 
backbone of paragliding instruction throughout the world. It's really cool. I get to talk with a lot of people about him still. That's neat. 16 years later. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that was really difficult and unexpected, obviously, because he was, like I said, 47 and passed away in his sleep and the autopsy showed there was no cause of death. Wow. So it was really confusing and tough for... My whole family. I have a brother. How old were you when this happened? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But how old were you? Oh, that's okay. I was 12. You were 12 years old when this happened. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. And um, my brother brother was 13. 13. Yep. And then um, after that, it was just, you know, it was super difficult for us in a lot of ways. My mom was absolutely a mess. Yeah. And then I went into shock pretty quickly. I blacked out like a lot of my teen years, like just don't remember them at all. And the parts that I do remember, I was usually using hard drugs. Uh, I started using drugs when I was 13, 12, actually still 12. And I never really let my school um, integrity sway. I still got straight A's, got a full ride to college, like somehow made it work. But I was absolutely numbing with all kinds of drugs. Meth? What did you take? Um, yeah, I at first got into like PCP. I didn't even know what it was. I was so young. I was 14, I think. I didn't even know what it was. I just knew that it was fun. Um, so I was smoking PCP for a wh- uh, quite a while there. And then I just, I started pretty much getting into anything I could get my hands on. So I never was into opiates, thankfully, um, because I think those are probably the most dangerous out there. They make me really, really ill. So I never got into heroin or any kind of opiates, but I was definitely doing an enormous amount of cocaine. Um, I was doing a lot of like what was that stuff? Um, like Theraflu, mm-hmm. isn't that horrible, but it was stuff we could get our hands on as sure. kids. And so I was taking a lot of that kind of stuff, like pretty much just packets and packets doses of, of it. Like yeah. That. Yeah. And then I was also just doing a lot of hallucinogens and that's a whole other story because I respect that aspect of my, of my story. And that helped me a lot um, to expand my perspective and to heal. So the, the, in that regard, I'm not too upset about things. But, you know, when you're using drugs a lot and numbing like that and partying all the time, you for sure put yourself in bad situations. So there was a lot of sexual trauma, a lot of rape in different forms and mm. then being told it was my fault. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, things where it was like just passing out in the wrong place at the wrong time, waking up to assault and just, yeah, continually being told it was my fault for putting myself in that position. And I was a slut. So that, yeah. And I was being arrested a lot for once again, putting myself in bad situations, um, bringing drugs to school, things like that. So it just felt like kind of a long and winding road of hurt. And my mom was just not really, she tried so hard to be there for my brother and I, but she herself was going through so much pain. Oh my gosh. Losing her husband at 47. Yeah. I mean, and to this day, she is 
my best friend and most wonderful mom that she could ever be. And I in no way blame her. Yeah, she is absolutely incredible. But for sure, she we were all going through our own. So it just I didn't have a way of dealing with it in a healthy manner. So until I got older, would you say that you started the drugs? Because of the pain of losing your dad, do you think that's the trigger or were you headed in that direction already or what? Oh, no, no. Like, I mean, literally months before he passed away, I uh, won the D.A.R.E. award for our town. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's 75,000 people here. It was a big deal. I won the Kiwanis award. I won, yeah, the D.A.R.E. award and got to do a little speech at this the college football game You're the good for kid. writing the best anti-drug essay. Yeah. I mean, I was all time teacher's pet, like favorite kid of everyone. And, um, absolutely that trauma triggered me to go into a very dark space. And I was, you know, I was suicidal at times, but I didn't ever really attempt anything. I just had a lot of those thoughts of it wouldn't matter if I left. Yeah. And you know what I'm noticing about people that have trauma and even my own trauma, Uh, Mine started with a divorce when I was 10 years old. My mom divorced uh, my stepdad. Uh, I was too young when my mom divorced my dad. I was like a year and a half years old. So I don't remember that one, but I remember this stepdad and I loved him and I really had a close affinity to him. And it seems like, and tell me if this is uh, something you've seen in your experience working with trauma uh, clients, when someone has even an innocuous kind of trauma, not saying that losing your dad was innocuous, but something seemingly smaller, it always cascades into things that are far worse than the original trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. So for me, it started with the divorce and then it led to mom sleeping with guys and I'm 10 feet down the hall listening in my room thinking she's getting hurt when she's making all those screaming noises not knowing what's going on and then she takes us to a nudist camp and thinks that's normal to take kids there that was trauma and then uh her thinking that i came at her with a baseball bat and to this day i have no memory of that her having me shipped away to live with my dad who then uh, proceeded to physically emotionally and uh one time sexually abusing me um it, it just cascades, it seems like when you have this one event, it sends you in a tailspin. How do you get people from the moment that your dad died, for example, from the moment that my mom and my stepdad decided to get a divorce? That's the that's the focal point, the turning point, the paradigm shift when everything happened. How do you get that point? How do you get people help at that very moment before they spiral out of control? Well, you know, I guess I could say it depends on the person. And I also could say I'm not sure. But I think one of the big things is that a lot of times people don't seek help in the moment. You know, they don't know to immediately go to counseling when they've had a trauma in their life, um, because usually it's not recognized right away. Or it's like, well, my friends and family are here, but if your friends and family haven't gone through that, um, and even if they have, they're not in your head. So that's a really difficult question to answer. And it's a great question. And I would love to explore that more. Um, I would love to explore that with people more. Well, and here's you know? the thing. There's a lot of people that go, they go all the way to adulthood. I'm 48 years old. 
And mm-hmm. I know people my age and older that are holding on to some of the most horrible, awful, trauma, traumatic crap in their life. They're just they're in a place where they're just so numb to what happened to them that they refuse to face it. They refuse to go to counseling about it. They just don't want to face it because it was painful, not realizing that that pain is still just percolating beneath the surface, just just ruining them from the inside out. And this is what I found for myself. Uh, I've been keto and low carb for over 15 years now, and I have literally always struggled with belly fat. And the belly fat just stays there no matter what I do. And it wasn't until I faced this uh, childhood trauma and start talking about it and start having these conversations and letting it all out and dealing with it and getting my own therapy that I now realize, okay, now I know why I was holding on to all that all these years and it's time to let it go. But people, they'll just, they almost like living in their own little pity party about what happened to them rather than trying to heal it. Right. Yeah. I mean, and this, this conversation, uh, I could talk hours about it, but, um, so on a little bit more like harsh level of the way I kind of have to view things sometimes, uh, an example of this, I agree with you on the belly fat. Same for me. I held on to an extra 20 pounds until about four years ago. Um, when I felt like I had my major breakthrough, And now, I mean, I'm so happy with the way that I eat and exercise and I don't, I'm not obsessive about stuff and I have never looked better or felt better. And you're right. I completely attribute it to letting go and finally breaking through with my trauma. But something my brother talks to me about regularly, and he's like this total Jesus figure. This guy really has it together. (laughs) He's like not from this world, I'm pretty sure. But um, I kept having all these experiences with men where I was, you know, in abusive relationships and verbally and physically, and then just like kept running into creepy men that I wasn't even dating, but like getting in these bad situations, even when I was an adult and not using hard drugs and, you know, not putting myself in like party type scenarios. Like I'd go on a date with a guy and be like, oh my God, that guy tried to lock me in his van. Like, what is up with this? And my brother was like, I don't want to victim blame you at all, but I'm going to present you this idea you have gone through a lot of sexual trauma, a lot of trauma with men, and maybe you keep being confronted with these type of men because you haven't worked out internally why you don't deserve that kind of behavior in your life. And that's a pretty simple concept, you know, but like we don't realize that concept is true to us in our own situation a lot of times until someone flat out says it to you like, hey, do you think maybe you're attracting this a little bit? And um, it's like once you realize that, I think it's a lot easier to kind of start breaking things down, at least on my end it was. Well, and Holly, I have to say that because of your experiences with all these guys, um, it became your normal. And this is something I'm noticing just uh, as I've been searching childhood trauma and the way people behave uh, after it. Normal is what my dad thought beating and emotionally berating uh, his kid was, because guess what? His dad 
was an alcoholic and was abusive and was uh, emotionally abusive as well, physically abusive. And that's the way he learned. And people say, <laughs> well, man, that had to be so abhorrent. Why would he do that? Well, he he did that to me and my brother because that's what he knew. It was normal for him. And so if something is normal, we have to stop looking at everybody's situation as, well, they should know what normal is. No, normal is what you think is normal. And right. some people's versions of normal are going to be far outside what actual normal is, that it's so jaded. You really can't blame people like my dad, for example, for not knowing that beating the crap out of their kids was a bad thing. Yep, exactly. And and then like once you realize that it can be easier to accept that um, our relationship with them and the way that we have been treated isn't a reflection of karma that we deserve. It's truly that it has nothing to do with us. And we were the unfortunate side effect sometimes of, you know, or like the punching bag kind of thing. Yeah. I have so much empathy for my father now. Um, and I've come to terms with why he did what he did. And I have just, I'm heartbroken for him because today he's 70 and he's uh, falling apart physically, uh, has had so many back surgeries and shoulder surgeries. He's on 21 different medications, including opiates, including all kind of pain meds and cholesterol medication. You name it. He's on that drug. He's he's the king of polypharmacy. And it has to be because he never fully dealt with all that childhood trauma that then led to him giving me childhood trauma. And thank God I never had kids. Uh, I still want to have kids someday, but I haven't had kids in my life because guess what, Holly? I would have beat the shit out of them. Or you're afraid you would have. I'm afraid I would have. And I, I'm just being honest. I yeah. think I would have. H how would I have not? Right. Well, yeah, and I think your your conscious awareness of that is probably what would have stopped you. Well, I have the conscious awareness now <laughs> at 48 right. years old. At 25, yes. I would have beat the crap out of the kid and berated them physically and emotionally. Well, at least now you know that and you're not 70 and still in denial. Oh, there's no way. Yeah, I'm know. 48 and I'm ready to show a kid all the love it's supposed to have. What's the worst part of doing keto? The meal prep. What you really need is a quick, customizable, and easy keto meal replacement for when your other food options aren't ready. Introducing Keto Chow. It's the fully customizable meal replacement that makes keto easy. Keto Chow takes just seconds to prepare. Add the fat of your choice, a scoop of Keto Chow, water, and shake. Just trust the thousands of five-star reviews on Facebook, Amazon, and Google Shopping. Keto Chow comes in 18 delicious flavors. And in a third-party blind taste test, Keto Chow outperformed all of the competitors in appearance, flavor, texture, and overall impression. Head on over to JimmyLovesKetoChow.com to place your order. And be sure to use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout for 10% off your first order. While you're there, be sure to check out the electrolyte supplements, no sweetener, no added flavor, no caffeine, and pure electrolytes. Keto Chow. Well, let me tell you something, I guess, about, um, I wanted, I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit about 
when, what my conversations with a client sound like. Yeah, please. Just because I don't know why that popped into my head. But um, so I hate to be cliche about it, but a lot of times when I'm working with a client, I come home and I'm just like crying on the way home, usually happy tears because there's been a breakthrough and it's like this beautiful experience where I'm like, wow, I just learned so much from them. But I truly do walk away sometimes thinking like, maybe I should be splitting their payment with, you know, I give them some back because like <laughs> I walk away from you get this, therapy like, oh too. God. Yes. Yeah. Big time. And I think, um, a huge part of breaking through our traumas is just having someone listen to us first of all, but having someone really listen to us by just playing the reflection game, you know, and saying like, okay, I hear you. Now, did you hear what you just said? Mm. Did you hear why you don't think you deserve to be in a positive relationship or why, you know, you're, you, everyone in your life is just going to die on you or whatever these beliefs are that people have conjured up through their uh, trauma patterns in their life. And once it's almost that thing where like, you're just so jaded and blinded to those patterns and attachment patterns that you've learned that once you see them clearly, you're like, <laughs> how did I go my whole life and not see this? Duh. It's almost, yeah, it's like, it's a lot of duh moments. And then once we see it, it's like there's an immediate weight lifted off our shoulders. And then we can st start to like shed the body weight and all these attachments that come with it physically. Um, I will give you, I, I so I call myself a, a very spiritual scientist, as you saw. Um, one example of that was several years ago, I was with this guy who was not a very good partner. Um, I thought that I was kind of in my point of healing from all my trauma, and I was on the tail end of it. I'm always learning, of course. Anyways, I shouldn't have been with this guy, but he was like the textbook perfect boyfriend. Well, I ended up cheating on him for the only time I've ever cheated on someone with my ex-boyfriend, whom I was still very much in love with. I didn't tell the boyfriend that I cheated on him. I just broke up with him. Within two days, I got the worst strep throat of my life. <laughs> and I was so angry because I knew that I had this strep throat because I wouldn't open my mouth. Oh, you immediately, really you immediately going. knew that. Yes. Wow. I was like, God I could feel my throat like closing up. I was on a hike. But that's consciousness at that point. Just like you said, I was woke uh, and, and I probably wouldn't have hit my kid. Uh, that's because mm -hmm. I'm talking about 48 years old, Jimmy Moore, 25 would have hit him. So at your point and at that point, you're like, oh, I, I know what this is. Dang it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you yes, took the blue pill I or the red pill or whatever it was from the Matrix. Exactly. And I think like, I guess my point to that is that you know, if we were to have some more awareness, obviously we're humans, physical things are going to happen to us. I don't think that every illness transpires from our thoughts or, um, you know, trauma that has happened to us, but I do think a large portion of them do. And if we pay attention sometimes a little bit more to like, why could this be happening to me? 
Um, what am I not letting go of? It's kind of wild how connected often our physical injuries or disease or illness are to the pain that we are experiencing internally, whether it be, you know, and you're that you're not speaking up about some way you feel, or you have a lot of you have a broken heart. And then you're experiencing heart palpitations and all kinds of stress. Yes. Um, it seems like such a simple concept, but to gain that awareness is a really beautiful thing. And it takes a lot of practice. Well, and earlier you talked about why people uh, deny their trauma. And I mm -hmm. think sometimes people get to that point where they're like, oh, well, that's in the distant past. And it wasn't as bad as I really think it is. And so people kind of rationalize in their head, oh, because it wasn't as bad or it's, it's really not a big deal. It was in the past yet yeah, sucked at the time, but I'm over it. Maybe that's some of the mentality of why people make it to their 50s, 60s, 70s and still don't ever deal with their trauma. Mm hmm. I will agree with you there. And I think a really big example of that is how many people are going through Alzheimer's and dementia. Oh my gosh, yes. I I mean, I think, so I've tried to do, I've written papers and done a lot of research on neurodegenerative diseases. And it's so strange to me how little evidence we have of what causes them and what these like triggers are. Right. And I really think that this might be a big example of epigenetics where we might have these markers for that stuff, right? right. You, they can even show that on 23andMe. Oh, yeah. But are we dealing with those markers in the proper way? Often, of course, through food and what we ingest, but also through our thought processes. And if we're someone who has gone through extreme trauma and we continue to stay in denial our whole lives or we are living in a form of shame that's so great we can't get out of it. Um, I can't help but think that that's going to contribute to us wanting to literally forget our oh, it, lives. It has right? to be doing that. It has to be doing that, Holly. And I would even add one more thing. And when it comes to Alzheimer's, we know it's referred to in research circles as type three diabetes. And so what is at the heart of diabetes? It's elevated insulin levels. Well, what mm -hmm. happens when you hold on to trauma and you hold on to it for years and never deal with it internally? That raises cortisol levels and other uh, hormones, which then leads to an increase in your insulin. I've had chronically high insulin, high for someone that eats a ketogenic diet anyway, like 13, 14. And some of these changes that I've made dealing with my past trauma, I'm seeing that come down in the single digits now. And that can't be anything but a positive effect with literally no change in the diet, no other changes. I am working out more, but these changes were happening long before that happened. It's powerful. And it's another reason why it's more than just the food. Absolutely. I love that you um, correlate those things. And in fact, when I was listening to another episode of yours yesterday, you had mentioned um the cortisol levels and sorry about this. My dog's here. You had mentioned the cortisol <laughs> levels and um, heart disease. And I yes. know that's a little bit of a branch off there, but I was like, yes, I, I have like resonated with that idea for so long. And yes. I mean, it is proven too that eating meat and cholesterol is not the culprit here. 
the problem is those elevated insulin levels. And um, that's really what causes heart problems. So it's so interesting that you say that. And I love it. Well, and we know that the diseases of heart disease and diabetes and Alzheimer's and even some cancers, we know all of them are basically the exact same disease. It's a Mm -hmm. disease of hyperinsulinemia, which is very high insulin levels and insulin resistant body where the body can't properly respond to uh, circumstances like trauma, even carbohydrates and things like that. You can't deal with it properly. And that doesn't come without consequences to your health, which turns into Alzheimer's. And we think it's an old age disease, but it might just be a, I hadn't dealt with my crap disease. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And it sounds harsh, but I'm really more and more believing that that's true. And the people in my life who have Alzheimer's and dementia um, are people who absolutely fit that mold. Had a hard life. Yeah. Or just have things that they did not, you know, mysteries about them where no one in their life kind of knew about their childhood or knew. It's like you can just tell that there is so much they're not telling you. And you got to expect that it's because it's bad. Um, And if they're not talking to anybody about it, Lord knows they're holding down to it somewhere. I'm starting to wonder any adult that never talks about their childhood, that very thing now. (laughs) Yeah. It's like if I mean, yeah, there's a lot of people had happy childhoods and I would say probably the vast majority of people had a decently happy childhood. But we're talking about a segment of the population who have evil secrets that here's the other thing. The family doesn't want it talked about. So the family puts the, you know, the hush hush on that. And then nobody feels like they're at freedom to talk about it, even as grown adults and can, you know, on their own free will, you know, do whatever they want. They're kind of respecting this unspoken code of you don't talk about this stuff publicly. Right, right. And I was I was talking with my mom recently about so my dad's stepmom um, has Alzheimer's and she's currently like, you know, the symptoms are increasing very quickly at this point. Um, and I was talking to my mom about, I don't want to use our family or anyone's, uh, ailments as a point of like interest or, you know, to degrade their or demean their ailment in my, uh, interest in them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Like, and and I had the same conversations with my mom, for example, and she's like, sweetheart, say whatever you got to say to help people. Yeah. Well, and so my, one of the things I've observed or just thought about, I guess, is that, so she's probably 76 and, um, you know, in her generation, there was a lot of parental child trauma. There was a lot, you know, abuse was a regular thing. It wasn't abuse. It was just the way life was. And that's not for every family by any means or for every culture, but from, at least from what my grandparents have told me and from what even my parents have told me, abuse and trauma were pretty regular and you just learned to shut up about it. So I don't know that it's so much of a coincidence that uh, her generation and, you know, they went through the Holocaust, um, Mm. you know, the Dust Bowl, like these things that were major traumas, not only on individuals, but on the community as a whole. So it makes me wonder how much of suppressing that is so directly related to 
these neurodegenerative diseases. I don't right. know. Well, yeah. and, and what you just said shows that this problem is generational. I told you about my dad's dad mm-hmm. being an alcoholic. I don't know anything about the family before that, but I'm assuming my grandpa, who I never met, that was the abuser, he probably had a dad that was abusive. And maybe before that was abusive and, and kind of this hush hush society at that point, you don't talk about it. Um, and that becomes generational. How do you break yes. that? I mean, it takes people like, for example, me, my brother, I had a brother, uh, Kevin, four years older than me. He died when he was 41, probably from mm-hmm. some trauma that was unresolved from from everything. Uh, my mom told me a story and I haven't shared this publicly, but my mom told me a story about when he was three weeks old, my brother, Kevin, mm-hmm. uh, and he was never good academically. He was always kind of he was the food of a ball player as that's how he would call himself. <laughs> I'm a food of a ball player. OK, dad. OK, yeah, that's good. OK, uh, <laughs> calm down, bro. Uh, but then he was like um, three weeks old. And mom said my dad went in there because he was crying incessantly and he didn't mean to. Mom said hit him hard in the back, but he was trying to get him to calm down and he was pretty aggressive hitting him in his back. And my mom mm-hmm. thinks to this day that that jarred something in Kevin's brain that made him a little less like something happened to his brain and he was traumatized. Um, Because, I mean, I was pretty highly intelligent, did really well in school. My sister, same thing. But Kevin was the outlier. He barely passed with a D minus grade point average graduating high school. Um, And so, you know, that that's like a revelation that I was like, oh, whoa, you know, and it just yeah, another underscore of. It became generational. That's just how you treat the kids. Right. Yeah. And that's why. So I'm a millennial and there's a lot of these funny memes coming out now, like millennials versus baby boomers and stuff. And you're you're not a baby. boomer. I'm a Gen X. I was Gen X. Yeah. Okay, you're Gen X. Yeah. And um, you guys got all that. You got off scot-free. You're just the in-between. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, we're not but, scot-free. We have our own problems, but we just yes. don't talk about them publicly. <laughs> the memes. You got off with the memes. Oh, yeah. with the memes. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I think that something that is really powerful in my generation is that even though we get made fun of for being overly sensitive and too PC and that there's like, you know, there, everyone wants to be coddled. Um, sure, that could be true in some situations. But I also think that my generation is making a massive change with acceptance. I agree. And saying like, that's okay. We can all go to a music festival and cry with a hundred people at one time, hugging each other. You know, it's like, I think the 60s and 70s really had a big movement with that. Yes. And then it was kind of, suppressed and oppressed and pushed down, down, down. And now people are making this uprising again. And it's an uprising, an uprising of positivity for the most part. And, um, I think that this wave of acceptance and love of all forms and all walks of life is a really beautiful thing because it's teaching people to change their vibration And to change what is okay and how we're going to adjust those traumas that we have had in the past and how we're going to break those patterns generationally. 
Man, I'm hoping some of the work I'm doing here and the great work that you're doing and, and lots of people are doing out there um, is going to get people to feel more comfortable about talking about this because, quite frankly, it's not going away. You can ignore trauma all you want. You can act like it never happened, but uh, not talking about it is not an option. You have to get it out. And I, I would warn people, though, this is going to bring up all that trauma again. I mean, I imagine you think back to some of your uh, days right after your dad died uh, and and all the that you went through. Um, some days it haunts you still, you know, you think about it, but even though you've resolved it and you kind of moved on and you're helping other people, you still deal with it. There's people that haven't even like dealt with it because they don't want to go through all that pain all over again. Yeah, I totally get that. Well, and an example of that for me personally too, is that, um, I, for some reason have, experienced an enormous amount of death in my life. Ever since my dad passed away after that, there were one or two people close to me in my life that died um, every year. Mm. Um, I mean, and it wasn't just like, oh, grandpa died because he was old. Right. It's like I had a couple of different friends get murdered really brutally, um, you know, motorcycle accidents, just overdoses, things that no town should have to experience on a regular basis. Um, but also one person. And I wasn't, there was a while there in my teens where I was like feeling really bad for myself. And in the end I had to realize their death wasn't about me. I was blessed to have them in my life in the first place. And now my perspective on it, at least in the role they had in my life, they had a much bigger role on this world was that, I think I have experienced a lot of death because this has propelled me into a space of um, healthy achievement in my career. Yes. You know, like it has helped me realize my life's purpose, I guess. And so I'm grateful for them every day for giving me that opportunity to reflect on how wonderful my life is that it can end at any moment and that they blessed me with their presence and that maybe all this like hurt I experienced from them leaving this earth is what's actually going to allow me to help hopefully thousands of others. Oh, Holly, I love hearing you say that because I've thought a lot about that in my own life of all the stuff I went through. And even before I started dealing with some of this childhood trauma, I was highly successful, three-time international best-selling author in the keto space and excelling despite not dealing. And now that I've dealt and am still dealing, I guess you never stop dealing <laughs> with right. the, the emotional trauma and getting over that. But you're in a good space now. I'm in a good space now. I, I'm just like anxious to see how is that going to be used moving forward? And hopefully this podcast and other outlets that I'm going to use speaking from stages and things like that will just get the message out even more. And that will kind of give a little bit of a meaning as to why all that happened. Right. Yes. I love that. And I'm, I think even, I mean, <laughs> it can be looked at as a little woo woo, whatever. I'm a spiritual person, but I do think that connections such as this one, you know, we were connected from Ross and Kara who are wonderful people. And even just having a conversation with someone like this, talking about how the world can be shifted, how we can use 
our trauma to empower others and ourselves, I personally think that that shifts a vibration all in itself. It's like these little conversations are what are making the world a better place. And you have a big platform too. So hopefully even just one person listening to this walks away going, whoa, that made my day much better. (laughs) Thank you. And I'm hoping that happens as well. Can I be honest with you? Uh, This is such a radical departure from the kind of thing I've been doing very interview based uh, about diet and fitness and general ideas of health. And this is very much health. I don't want anybody to listen to this and go, what's this have to do with health? You've been about health for 15 plus years. Why are you talking about this? This is everything about health. And I was a little bit concerned because when you start talking about this subject, Holly, and you know this being deep in it yourself, people don't want to hear it. They kind of tune out. You got a certain segment that go, okay, that kind of sounds interesting. But you got a huge segment that tend to kind of criticize it and go, well, that's not applicable to me. Well, it may not be personally applicable to you listening right now, but there's somebody in your life that needs to deal with their past trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, too, is as you said in the very beginning, everyone experiences trauma. It's part of being a human. I, you know, I fully believe that other beings out in this universe are either wishing they could be human or are manifesting being human in another life because we get to experience breathing, eating, loving, you know, sex. We get to experience all these things that imagine if you were like a star or a light being, whatever, you know, you're not, you don't get to experience that. And part of the reason we appreciate those experiences is because we experience trauma too. So we, we learn to, we learn to grow and respect and appreciate all of the little things, hopefully through some of the crappier things we have to go through. It's like that life balance and anyone who's still in a state of denial that that's the case. I I feel for them. Um, cause people who think it's silly to address these things, I I do think they're in a state of denial and if they'd talk about it or give it a chance, they probably could be a lot happier. Absolutely. It's which is why we're talking about it here today. Hey, I want to bring up something that was in the news recently. We had the tragic death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Gianna, and a whole bunch of other kids and and different people in that helicopter crash in L.A. recently. Um, and I, I just can't imagine what Vanessa Bryant and the, the other kids that are still survived, the trauma that they are experiencing right now. If you were helping them, what would you say the next step would be? Oh, take a deep breath. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose for me on a real level, I would have to know them in person. Fair um, enough. Yes. I think, like I said, I work with people on an intuitional level. And so I want to be conscious about the way people process things on an individual um, level. But I would say for anyone experiencing the death of a loved one would be first to, instead of trying to relive what they went through in that moment of death, Um, when you start to picture that instead picture 
a time they were smiling or happy or radiating their energy to you. And try to fill your mind and your heart with those images. Um, try to push the others out <laughs> yeah. and replace them with that. Easier said I, than done, yeah. It is, it is. And I kind of compare it to like when, you know, you're a little kid having nightmares and your mommy and daddy tell you, just try to think of, you know, Unicorns the day and you rainbows. get married. Yeah, or kittens, <laughs> whatever. As much as it's not that easy, um, it does help. Yeah. And they would want us to think of them that way. But I also think journaling and writing your feelings is one of the best things we can do. Even if all you do is write is scribble big curse words about your anger. That's fine. It's cathartic. Get it out. Um, I would say that that's probably my number one suggestion would be to write out your feelings, no yeah. matter how, if you're crying through the pages and also to get exercise and sunshine. Yes. Because no matter what those help. And a lot of our trauma and, you know, um, sadness is a chemical thing. So if we can get those endorphins up, we will be able to make it through each day a little bit easier. You know, when you said that positive image, all I could think about were like all the pictures of Kobe and Jana and how he loved on her. And there was one video that went viral where they were courtside at a basketball game a couple months ago. And you could see Kobe talking adoringly to her and she was laughing and being adoring back. That's the kind of thing that you want to remember. Uh, and it's really beautiful. Uh, and I know you have uh, that same kind of view of your dad losing him sudden, suddenly at an early age. Um, and I think that's the thing with Kobe and your dad. And it was sudden. It was just like mm -hmm. out of nowhere, at least when they're older, like both of my parents are are older now. It will still be sad when they're dead, but it won't be surprising. It was surprising right. when Kobe Bryant died. It was surprising when uh, Holly White's dad died. Um, you know, these aren't things that you prepare for. Uh, you're sadistic if you prepare ahead of time that what happens if somebody in my life dies. <laughs> right. So, you know, you, you kind of get there in your head. And so I, I love your suggestions. I love the work you're doing. I'm so glad, Holly, that we got to connect. Thank you, Ross and Kara, uh, for connecting uh, me to this wonderful woman here today. And I sincerely appreciate you being here today on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Thank you so much, Jimmy. It's been a wonderful, wonderful space to be in. And you're just um, a really great person. And I have enjoyed this conversation. Wow. Sorry. And the dog did, too. The dog really yes. loved it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I have really greatly enjoyed this conversation. And thank you for letting my little dogs be a part of it. Well, this show is always going to go to the dog, so why not do it today? So, <laughs> <laughs> Good one. And on that one, we're out of here. Uh, living the vida loca, this show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up the avocados, fry some eggs, time to explore. The longest running health podcast, hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage, we're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal, yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused, don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the living la vida low carb show. Hey. The Living Low Carb Show.com. Woo! Disc of Light. <laughs>